It's Inauguration Day today as Joe Biden becomes the 46th president. I talk about that with my guest and good friend Dan Basco. We also discuss social media and where we see society going. I'm Josh Benner, and this is the Today's Faith Matters podcast. Dan, it's so wonderful to have you with me. It's so great to see you today and just uh, look forward to this conversation with you. And as we begin, um, your passion is missions and serving abroad. And I'd love to have you just talk about that for a moment. Absolutely. So when Josh and I met, uh, we were both students in seminary at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, also known as TEDS. And um, I was, I say that in past tense, but it, it's still a, a reality for me that I'm very much passionate about missions, global missions. And I was a student at TEDS because I felt God calling me to the country and people of Japan. And, you know, it, currently, you know, full disclosures, I'm, I'm not professionally employed in ministry. I was right after TEDS, um, after I graduated, but God kind of took me along route and um, I worked in a church. It wasn't too healthy, but uh, I think it was that passion and zeal for what God was doing, not just locally, but globally, that helped me uh, endure through a very painful season in ministry. And even when I resigned and I was looking for redirection and God's uh, possible redirection. And, and I think that the how of missions has changed, but, um, you know, really thinking about how good and glorious God is and being influenced uh, in large part by, by what I see as a biblical theology of mission and um, how God is constantly on uh, expanding his dwelling place to get at the language of uh, Beale. And if you talk to me long enough, I'll, I'll throw down some Beale because um, I, I really like his scholarship. I think he put some very good arguments and I, I like that framework um, that he has for thinking about space and uh, the space that God inhabits, um, especially us, his people, the church. And that's such a beautiful picture that it's not just a uh, thing to think about, but uh, a reality to inhabit as he dwells in us and among us. Uh, so anyway, that's getting a little bit into the weeds, but that passion and zeal has not really died, but the how and how do you engage missions as our world is drastically changing and quickly changing uh, as we're going to be getting into in a little bit, I suppose. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I should mention for anybody who's watching or listening, we were recording this on Monday, a couple of days before the inauguration for Joe Biden. And Dan to me is such a multifaceted renaissance man, as far as your knowledge of missions, history, anthropology, and I think that's part of the reason why you and I always have such interesting conversations is I think we just are both very curious about a lot of the topics and subjects that kind of trying to explain why the world is the way that it is. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And I think that, you know, that, that is the challenge for us in our day and age, because I think one of the things that social media in particular does to us is it makes information so quick for us to access, but it makes it harder for us to digest in a deep thinking sort of way. So it's harder for us to actually reflect and it's easier for us to react. Um, and in fact, that's a whole genre uh, within the social media, um, YouTube type uh, um, space. It, it's a whole genre. You can make your whole living off of reacting to things and giving your hot take. And um, I, I think that there's a time and a place for a reaction, but there's also a time and a place for reflection. And that's what I enjoy about our friendship. 
Yeah, absolutely. That's I mean, that's an interesting observation unto itself. How just I feel like we are very reactionary as a society. Uh, I feel like we more and more rely on our preconceived ideas and notions to to label and to judge and to prejudge. And um, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I hear a lot of talk about echo chambers, and I hear that from both sides. But I feel like anybody is capable of creating their own echo chamber. And I, I think of that right now specifically as I think about politics um and just i think part of the divisiveness in our country is it's so it's never probably been easier to really just have access to what you want to know and to ignore what you choose to ignore right and i think that's one of our great dangers and i'm definitely prone to it you know um i think part of that if, if we want to get into the nitty-gritty is um and i don't want to just uh, remove our own agency from making and the fact that we actually make choices, but we also have to understand that we live in a context and um, in our day and age, um, a lot of what we do requires being online and just the very nature of how um, You know, visual media stimulus works upon your brain, especially if there's a like button right next to it. Um, it's creating a a physiological response in your in your brain, a biological response that says yes, good. So you're you're actually dropping um, hormones uh, when you post something and you get a like, um, or you see engagement along the lines of something that you are predisposed to agree with already. So it makes you feel good when you engage media that you like or you agree with. Your initial reaction to something you disagree with, that's like an unpleasant feeling because you could be wrong. The things that you're passionate about or you feel so entrenched upon, that could be, you very well could be wrong or, you know, it's just something unpleasant to, to face, a reality or an argument that you just drastically disagree with. And so it's easier to go with the flow. So, they, so, you, so the saying goes. And um, so even your brain is being hardwired to escape argument, even though in some ways it just increases argument. Uh, but now we're getting into a little bit of the specifics, but that's just to say that this is not just a matter of coaching someone how to think or how to have uh, more of a liberal arts approach to thinking. In other words, being free to think, being uh, taking more of probably the Greek trivium approach to knowledge. You know, you learn your grammar, you learn um, your syntax, then you have your rhetoric, or you learn an argument, you know, the basics, the foundation. So you just wrote, memorize everything. Then you move on to making the different people within that body of knowledge talk back to each other. Then you have a voice. Then you're able to, to say, these are what everyone has said. And I agree with this part. I disagree with that part. But now I'm going to offer some insight with some new information. So you could say it's kind of like your bachelor, master's, PhD level style of education. But now it's just, I'm already at the PhD level. I want to have my input. Here's my voice. And into that giant cacophony, you know, it's harder and harder to have any authorities as to uh, what's actually a sound argument or what's not, because now we're just, you know, we're just appealing to authority, which is a logical fallacy in and of itself. And I've just meandered all over the place. But I think that just gives a, a weird general lay of the land for how quickly our world has changed as far as the, the landscape of ideas. Um, 
universities are no longer a, a guarantor of what is good information when a, a good majority of folks are getting their information from other uh, medias or mediums. Same thing with what's called the legacy media, um, your print newspapers or your primetime television news anchors. Now you have cable, now you have YouTube, now you have Snapchat, now you have TikTok, you have Instagram. And all of these are vying for your attention. And they're all saying, this is what you should value, what you should love, what, should, what you should worship, what you should fear, and what you should believe. Yeah, absolutely. That's all very interesting. And certainly a, a change in just the dynamics of our society and how we consume media. And um, it's been a lot of change. It's interesting, just everything as a world we've been through, I mean, just in the past 12 months, not just politically, but from COVID and um, issues of social issues that we've faced. And it just, as a society, like we've just been beaten up in the past year. And um, so I guess one of the first questions I'd be curious to ask is with everything that we've gone through, looking forward as we start a new administration um, and not even po politically as far as what we agree or disagree with on a certain politician, but just the way the society is going, do you feel like you're more optimistic or pessimistic stepping into um, 2021? Okay, so uh, this is probably one of my character faults on the one hand, as a, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you know, I, be, I believe that we should always be optimistic in the sense that, um, and I am hopeful. And I, I, perhaps that's the better distinguishing way, uh, way to distinguish yeah. between optimism and hope. Um, because somehow, you know, the inner pessimist in me will say like, blind optimism is just forcing yourself to see it differently when there's a reality to be dealt with. Um, and, and maybe you're just naive and you're willfully naive, but again, that's the pessimist in me. But I, I think as a Christian, you say, this is not the way things ought to be. There's an oughtness to the world that ha has been inaugurated in the rule and reign of Jesus Christ and is yet to be consummated. And, and it gets at that present progressive, um, I believe it's present active progressive or present it's an active tense in uh, I am making all things new. Uh, it's, it's a continuing thing. It's something that has begun and that is reaching its culmination. We don't know when, you know, because, you know, the father doesn't even tell the son, <laughs> you know, to use that hyperbolic language from the New Testament. Um, but we know the season. And, and in that sense, you, you can tell that there's a season approaching in which um, more and more creation is groaning um, for its creator to consummate through his rule and reign. And that, that's something to be very hopeful about. But I think even it, it generally just, uh, you know, I, I don't want to get into too much eschatology here because that can get quickly, you know, heated because people have different uh, stances on where they land on their end time theology. But I think part of that, it's disagreeable to say that God is doing amazing and wonderful things, be hopeful about that, but also be a realistic, a realistic person, because at the same time, the devil is going to ramp up his resistance to whatever God's doing in the world. That's amazing and beautiful. Um, so I, I think that's where I'm hopeful, but I'm also a realist that 
you know, the United States is not coterminous with the kingdom of God, his rule and reign. Um, you know, I have some preferences for um, where I land on economic philosophy and, you know, judicial philosophy and whatnot. Um, I mean, everyone has an opinion these days. Why can't I have one? But, <laughs> but those things are not in the grand scheme of things as important as the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. And in that sense, I can be a realist. I can be disappointed about certain things in my context, but I can be very hopeful that in the grander story of what God is doing, that he, his rule and reign will be consummated. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate that perspective. And um, yeah, I, I, I put it how there, there should be this idea of, of hopefulness. Um, yeah. And what is going on and um, ultimately God is going to do everything to his own glory and for his own glory. And that doesn't mean that everything's going to be pleasant along the way. Um, and so, yeah, these are just, these are interesting times that we're living in. Oh yeah. I mean, it, it, part of being a realist is um, not sugarcoating certain things that I think are very deeply disturbing um, with leaving kind of the whole Republican, Democrat, liberal, progressive to libertarian to conservative conversation aside, I think that just looking at the larger scope of human history, you know, the amount of debt that we're running compared to our GDP is no country has ever survived. No, no nation or empire has ever survived, historically speaking, running such great debts or overextending itself as far as its influence in a geographic sense. I mean, uh, I believe the fall of the Roman Empire was predicated by its overexpansion and its lack of attention to its interior. And then how, as we see quite kind of happening with a lot of countries within the EU to the US, you, you see quite a divide between your urban dwellers and um, your periphery or more of your country. And when your tax policy outpaces what your agrarian society is able to actually pay, that's a kind of a recipe for disaster because all empires run on actual food. And you know, if you're paying attention to environmental stuff, uh, you know, whether you disagree or, or agree with global change or global warming or whatnot, you know, it, it is somewhat, I think everyone can agree that you need water to grow things. And when you pay attention to geopolitical conflicts, such as between India and China, um, and Kash the Kashmir Valley, Pakistan and India, and kind of all over, even what's happening here now that I've moved to California, I'm more aware of water issues. But, you know, yeah. you know, the majority of, I believe, the U.S.'s crops grow in California, and yet it's taking in water from, I believe, uh, Nevada, Nevada, sorry, I have to pronounce that correctly for my Nevada friends, uh, <laughs> um, or, and Utah. And that's disconcerting because, you know, you have the coastal regions who are um, distancing themselves from the interior. Um, and, and so what does that mean as people begin to move towards where they would like to live ideologically, but also uh, with regard to policy? And that really makes for interesting conversations about uh, 21st century balkanization in the United States. So yeah, anyway, I think we went all, all over the yeah. world. <laughs> no, you're good. I think that's all. I think that's very interesting. That's something my wife talks about a lot. She has a degree mm -hmm. in history too, 
as far as one of the things that does interest her a lot about just what we're going through right now, especially with COVID, I think is what sparked this thought is the long-term changes that we don't even necessarily know about today, that five years, 10 years down the road, 50 years down the road that we'll look back on and then our children and grandchildren will look back on and see the line that COVID drew. You know, I feel like if you watch the history of like anything, it's like World War II is like this like BC, AD type of event where like everything changed. Now, I'm not saying COVID is that monumental, but where I think you do have long-term changes. And one of the things I was reading an article yesterday talking about um, where people live. And certainly there are certain areas that people are moving out of. And it was interesting because the article is also bringing up that more and more jobs have become remote over the past year. And some of these jobs are going to stay remote. And so you're going to have people who don't have to necessarily live in a certain area. Obviously you live in California where it costs about a, a billion dollars to live anywhere. Um, that might have people that you might have people who, I mean, I think even living in Illinois, I mean, Illinois is an expensive state to live in. I live in a small town, but you might have people from larger cities where it is very expensive, where taxes tend to be high, uh, where a lot of times there is a higher crime rate than rural areas. Um, you, you know, I'm not saying that everyone's just gonna leave every major city, but that you might have noticeable shifts of people leaving for more rural areas where it's just cheaper to live. Yes, and there's a lot of different factors involved. I mean, even when we were students back in Illinois, I believe at the time there were some um, interesting studies and folks watching the population changes of California, New York, and Illinois, mostly because of the policies of their larger cities setting policy for the state. And what they were observing is that the, the states were dying by way of population. Um, and they were moving, these people, as they were tracking them, they were moving to predominantly Texas and Virginia at the time. And that's because uh, not so much Virginia by policy anymore, since it flipped pretty much in a strong blue. Um, again, this is just descriptive. I'm not kind of sure. making a comment here, but um, a lot of, for example, how is it? there are as many Fortune 500 companies now in the Austin area and Texas as a whole, as there are in California. That has to do a lot with um, the business-friendly laws. And I think that's only accelerated a trend. COVID-19 has only accelerated that trend. Um, let's put it this way. If you know your cost of living is somewhere between, and this is just for rent, and this is true in the Santa Barbara area where I now live. If, if your cost of living is somewhere around 40% of your paycheck, and that's just your rent, if you don't have a job that actually is secure, and that by that means you actually are paid through the whole thing, you're actually working, whether remotely or on site. Um, and if that company does not have the infrastructure or is in a type of industry that is deemed necessary, again, depending on which state and where you live, how close to the city and whatnot, um, your business that you worked for may have gone belly up. That's permanent job loss. You know, that, that job may never be coming back, even though you yourself have the capability of working. So what are you going to do if, if, you know, $600, you know, or now it's 1200 if you count more or less the, the full calendar year or the, to the extent that 
COVID-19 has been going on in the United States, you got $1,200 back from the federal government. And yet that's kind of disturbing at the same time, because, and now I'm bleeding into some other very disturbing things. When was it the Federal Reserve, or sorry, Mint just printed probably close to 65, more than 65% of all US dollars in the past 10, 12 months. Yeah. That's in all US history. That's how yeah, much money we printed. Which is, I mean, that's almost impossible to wrap your mind around. Right. And I'm not calling, um, you know, uh, pre uh, Hitler Germany as far as the amount of debt, you know, because of the, the treaties, the very punitive treaties that uh, uh, the French and the British really levied upon the Germans after World War One. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying we're not going to necessarily be shoving, shoveling, you know, dollars into wheelbarrows to go buy a loaf of bread from you know, your local grocery store. I think that's a bit of an alarming thing. But if you think about the comparison of living in a place like California or in New York, where you have very high taxes compared to, let's say, a Wyoming or an Idaho, it's very friendly and there's a lot more open space. There's a reason why the homesteading movement has suddenly taken off in the past year and a lot of people are moving to the Idaho River Basin. Natural resources, it's relatively open and there's a lot of leave me alone type open property and a government that generally leans in that direction. So I do think that there's a overall um, balkanization, if you will, uh, of different regions within America and it's away from cities. And yet at the same time, you know, folks are leaving, but their values haven't changed. So it's interesting what will happen. And I, you know, my prediction is that um, we're going to be headed into an interesting time politically in which larger cities and suburbs are going to be dominating policy whereas there's going to be an increasing number of people who are going to feel alienated from um, decision-making, uh, who are left more in the periphery, uh, which has yeah. never voted well for any empire. When you divorce the unit or you have the, a schisming of the people between it, when you have consider your agricultural base and then your city and your mercantile uh, classes. I, I think in places where I've lived, also I was, trying, I was trying to do the math and you were talking about the percentage of income that housing costs. I think in the small town we live in in Illinois, it's like 15%. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it breaks my insane. heart. <laughs> I'm sure, I can't, I, um, and, uh, I think of the church where I serve, you know, if we'd gotten called to a larger city, I mean, obviously California is exceptionally expensive, but I mean, I think even of my, my hometown of Columbus, Ohio, and that's considered to be one of the most affordable major cities in America. It's still expensive to buy a house. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, it's still hundreds of thousands of dollars. And but it's interesting what you said about how um, this sort of, disconnect between like a major city and obviously Chicago in Illinois is a you know is a prime example of it kind of dominates the rest of the state and you know I live a couple hours south of Chicago I don't think there's really a whole lot of affinity for Chicago in the area but I, I also think of when I lived in Minnesota a town of about two and a half hours outside of the Twin Cities and again Minnesota is similar where Minneapolis St. Paul really kind of directs a lot of the rest of the state 
And I think about where we were, we were an hour from Fargo, North Dakota, Fargo, as the locals call it. And um, I feel like up there, I feel like they had a lot more in common, just in terms of the cultural mindset and sensibilities, far more in common with Fargo than they did with Minneapolis, St. Paul. And um, yeah, it's almost like it's not even the same state. Right, right. And, and, you know, I grew up outside of Washington, D.C. Um, and my parents, for example, they commuted their whole lives, more or less, into Washington, D.C. My dad, before he retired, he worked very close to uh, the White House. You know, he would walk by it, you know, Lafayette Park, and he'd walk DuPont Circle um, quite often. And that was life growing up in, in Northern Virginia. But if you go, you know, at the time I was growing up, before I left for college, um, if you went to Fredericksburg, uh, if, if for your Civil War buffs, you know, Battle of Fredericksburg, you know, it's just down the road. Um, if you go down there at the time, you were in rural Virginia. There's a whole different perspective. There, you hear the Virginia Southern accent. The food is quite different. Um, and, and you know that you're in the middle of a forest. It's wooded. There's, you know, when it's dark, it's dark, but not anymore. That Northern Virginia has spread out. And if you talk to people outside of Northern Virginia and you say, I'm from Northern Virginia, they would most likely tell you, you're not a real Virginian because there's a whole cultural attitude and way of being in the world that's different from that very metropolitan, cosmopolitan, uh, very politically savvy, you know, my local news is the national news type mentality that a lot of northern virginians yeah. have yeah and, and so i'm one of the rarities because i was born and raised in northern virginia and for a time i moved back there and, and when i went back there uh for short for a few years you know most of the people who had moved there were not native virginians you'd be hard pressed to find at least one person who's actually from that area most of everyone who was local were had been pushed out of Northern Virginia because of the increased cost of living. Yeah, that is, so there's just this great sort of shuffling around mm -hmm. that we have in the country. Right, right. And I think, you know, you, all you have to do is look at the past uh, three or four um, electoral college maps from our general election, and you will literally see what is the real functional divide in America. It's deeply red in every, every place that it's a periphery to a major city and deeply blue wherever it is, there's a city um, or in a major suburb feeding into that city. So again, it's not to say good thing or bad thing, but it is, I think, just generally prescriptive reality. Yeah. Uh, I think I've played my hand a little bit. I mean, I'm, I'm a Keynesian by economic philosophy. No, I'm sorry, not Keynesian. I am decidedly Austrian in my, uh, I'm not a fan of Keynes, but I was taught Keynesian economic um, theory when I was in high school. He was kind of like the big wig, you know, but anyway, we're not gonna go there. <laughs> Sounds good. So with all of this moving around and all of this, discontinuity between the major cities that can dominate the rest of a state. Um, I think you touched on this a moment ago, but do you see that societally as being problematic for the American 
system? Yeah, yeah. So I, I think there's a couple of things to keep track of here. One is a geogra geographic divide. People are moving, you know, uh, and we see that. And again, I'd like to point folks toward um, the homesteading movement. That's really just taken off in the past 10 years. And what that is, is a general distrust or dissatisfaction with the way that overall governance is moving. People want to feel free at the very least, or they want to own all the, all the means of production as far as actual goods and services. And maybe they just are disenchanted with the vision of the good life, the, the techno-global, you know, media-saturated good life. And I, I think there's good reasons for that, you know, some very admirable reasons for that. Um, so there, there's that geographic divide. But I'd also like to point out that there is also a digital space divide. And we can comment upon Parler and how AWS, um, Amazon Wireless Services pulled the, their service, uh, service from them um, to the Apple Store, the App Store, pulling Parler off as well as uh, the Google Play Store. Uh, but that, I think, is just uh, indicative of digital space. Um, and whether you believe you know, under Section 230 is functioning as a utility versus a publisher, if you want to go in that direction, whatnot, I think that just for purely descriptive reasons, we have to understand that people are aligning themselves in different communities or they're balkanizing in different areas of the internet. And so we have to think about where we get information from and how it's really shaping our communities. Because by and large, the definition of a good neighbor has changed. And I'm really borrowing this thing from someone else that they noted that the good neighbor in the early 1990s was the person you knock on their front door at you know, any evening and say, hey, I need a cup of sugar and delighted to give you a cup of sugar or a cup of flour. These days, a good neighbor is someone you don't know and minds their own business. And at least in a major suburb of uh, a big metropolitan city, you know, who wants to know their neighbor? And increasingly, and again, I think this goes to what I said about um, tweets and uh, social media. If your brain is hardwired to only go in the direction of news or media uh, that will, you know, agree with your own preconceived notions or sentiments, the same applies essentially to your physical relationships. So you may be quiet among people you disagree with and then you might tweet about a storm. Uh, you might uh, post to your friends, your real friends, but you're physically present with other people. And that's just an interesting thing to, to think about as Christians, that you could be physically present, but mentally or fully present somewhere else. And you're somehow, you know, they used to say, um, in the pre-modern era, you lived where you worked, where you worshiped. So that was your community. You know, you lived in a village, you worked there, you went to church there, you died there, you got married there. But with technological change, you know, you didn't necessarily live where you worked, where you worshiped. So then we had the problem of city or suburb churches where, you know, you could be three different people. Your at-home person, the person you are at church, and the person you are at work. And add in the digital, that fourth dimension into it. And you could be not present anywhere, but fully most yourself or that secret self posting pseudo anonymously. So 
I think we have to understand that we, we have to add this weird quasi-gnostic layer of, of geography or spatial community in there. And there's a reason I want to go there. And I'm sorry for hogging the mic here, but yeah, that's I fascinating. the reason I, I want to bring this up is because um, Benedict Anderson, if I remember the author's name correctly, he wrote a book uh, a few, I think one or two decades back, it's called Imagined Communities. And his thesis generally was that um, you didn't have the modern nation state emerge until you had print capitalism. So his argument goes something like this. Uh, for example, in, uh, before Germany was Germany, you had the Germanic states and Germanic kingdoms who were kind of fighting it all out. Then Gutenberg comes along and then he has the printing press. And what does he print? He prints the Bible. But beyond just the religious aspect, one of the things that Gutenberg's Bible does is it standardizes German. Beforehand, all you had were these villages, Germanic villages, where you lived, where you worked, where you worshiped. If some large invading force was coming over, a Germanic prince or king would say, hey, I'm gathering everyone up, you've never seen him before in your life, but you know his standard. And you're like, oh, okay, well, if I don't fight, I guess I'll die or starve. So then you, you go to fight. And that's really your whole community is what someone tells you of maybe the next village, but your community is conceptually just what you conceive of in your reality. But the moment you have something that can be printed and mass printed, and you can standardize the language, then you can know, oh, that village over the hill, over there, they're Germans too. And what you do see is the rise of proto-German nationalism happening at the same time that the printing press is really starting to catch on. And so Anderson kind of like, he, he says like this takes off like wildfire and now you can bridge large geographic distances with a common shaping narrative now he doesn't just say print capitalism is the only thing but it's key now let's just fast forward a little bit now that we have digital media always on all the time and it really it's not just print it's a video it's audio through someone else's lens and that puts the emotions right up in your face all the time so the stories we tell ourselves about who we are who we belong to what we ought to love and the way things ought to be are not really controlled by the librarian or whatever school of thought you know you you espouse to from you whoever taught you political history in you know your liberal arts college or your, your gen eds it's now all these different voices and so you see the fracturing of those larger communities, perhaps. So it, it's like the Wild West of community, of imagined community. So I'm just taking Benedict Anderson's work and I'm just trying to run with it a little bit. But that, I think, uh, is a scary thought. But I think it's also an opportunity as Christians to think about what ought to be the story that unites all Christians at all times in all spaces and, and can that ring truer and be more real than the you know I believe it was C.S. Lewis uh, it was one of those British guys um, or G.K. Chesterton who said like the problem is the newspaper it's always in my face you know it's bringing all the world's hurts and worries right up here and and that's closer to me than God and I'm really butchering kind of the anecdote but that's so much more true in our uh, media and I would say infested, infested landscape. So what, what's going to bring us as one as the people of God 
the, the story of scripture? Um, or is it going to be all the different uh, subliminal messages of the way the world ought to be through our eyes and the affections that they impress upon us? That was, uh, that was brilliant. <laughs> um, <laughs> thank you. That's, I mean, that's, that's a lot to think about. And um, yeah, that is, that is such a rich analysis. Um, I don't know where to begin. Um, I'll, I'll kind of begin with the, the end of that, where you're talking about faith communities and to, to turn it a slightly different direction. This is something that I, uh, I thought a lot about lately. And again, we've we, we already touched on this, but the intense political divide that exists in our nation. And I, I see so many Christians who, and I feel like people do it on both sides, where they want to demonize anybody who identifies as a Christian who's on the other side politically. Oh, many people go into the extreme of saying that if somebody disagrees, that they can't even be a Christian. They're not even in the kingdom. They, you know, so we almost elevate it to a gospel issue. See, I thought we were justified by faith alone. Some people, when I say, no, we're justified by faith and believing, you know, this sort of political legalism almost. Um, and again, I think both parties can be guilty of it because I'm a big believer that John Calvin was right when he talked about the human heart being a factory of idols. I think both sides can be guilty of creating idols of their own party. And I actually think both sides, um, I'm not seeing everybody, I'm not seeing every American citizen who has a political opinion does this, but I think there are people within both parties who either elevate their party or certain individuals within their party to, to an almost cultish status. I think he has talked a lot about lately with President or former President Trump, which is a, is a problem. And, and I think, you know, that it's one thing if, if we like things that he does or has done, um, he's not God. He, he's not a political messiah. He's not our savior. But again, I think the, th the same thing happens on the other side where people put all their hopes in, you know, progressivism. And I, I think we can make religions of, of both parties. Yeah, and, you know, it's really interesting to me. Um, and I'll tie this into to social media again. Um, you know, we kind of lived in this weird heyday of um, my private life is mine. Social media has essentially ended that. Because, yeah. you know, where, where I mentioned, you know, in the modern era, you could live where you work, where you worship, where you didn't have to. You could be three different Sorry, can people. I, can I give you an example? Yeah. Sorry to cut you off. No, go for it. So, because I'm, I'm a couple years older than you. And so, like, when I was a freshman in college, like, that's when we got Facebook. Like, it was the Facebook yeah. still at the time. Mm -hmm. And I remember, I, I remember some of the different changes that Facebook made. Because Facebook, when it started... Uh, it was very different than what it looks like today. It was obviously just for college students. You had one profile picture. You would put your, you could put your class schedule up there because it was like your network was your college. Um, you obviously, you didn't share videos. You didn't really share statuses. Um, it, 
there wasn't even messaging at the time. Like it was very simplistic compared to, actually there was messaging, but it was very simplistic in comparison to what it became. But I remember as the different changes came up on Facebook and like the home page on Facebook used to basically be a, a picture of your own profile picture. And if like, if you had any messages or the, if there were any friends' birthdays, it would show you that, but that was pretty much it. And then I think it was probably a couple years later, like around 06, where they added the news feed and where they were taking information that people had posted on their own Facebooks and putting that all, and it was, it was like creepy. It was like some sort of like Orwellian, like, but now it's just, we didn't care. Right, right. So, um, I don't even know what the, the original question was. <laughs> There's so much to comment on. Um, but yes, I, I, I agree with you. Political idolatry, and then you you would yes, sort of political circle idolatry. it back to social media. Yes, I, I know where I'm going with you, with it now. Um, yeah, I actually came in on the tail end. My freshman year of college, I was on the tail end of Facebook being exclusively for college students. So I remember that. And in addition to that, um, my college had very shoddy internet. Its internet was better than <laughs> the internet. So, you know, we were forced to really just, you know, in the middle of a Chicago winter, you, you know, you interact with people. You don't interact with what they posted. Uh, and really, it wasn't until 06, what was it, 08 was, yeah, 08 was when the iPhone came out. And that's when Facebook became an application. So it wasn't no longer just the, um, you know, laptop or the desktop where it was your portal. Now it was a smartphone and it went with you everywhere. And I, I think the reason I, I want to point that out, and I give full credit to my friend Anthony Buck, another fellow TED student, when he and I talked, he said, one of the things that social media has done is it has reintroduced to the Western world an increased level of shame that it otherwise didn't have. I mean, there's, there's shameful things regardless of whatever culture you're in. Sure. You know, for example, back in the 90s growing up, and, you know, like true love waits and, and whatnot, if you're in an evangelical circle, there was like, oh, you, know, you got to have your WWJD bracelet or, or you're not in the in crowd, right? It has to be the official brand. You know, we have these... Uh, we had these little things of shame. You know, there was always like a few cultural sins that were worse than others. And I think social media, you know, shame works when you have a community. That, that shame honor function really comes to the surface when your lives are intermeshed like this. If you can, if you don't have to work where you live, where you worship, and you can shut the door on community, being in your business and being in your life, there's no shame. You can do whatever you want in secret. But if social media and the way that we communicate is suddenly on all the time, people may not be physically present, but you feel their presence. Should I post this? If I, if I, you know, you know, the, there was much talk about the hidden Trump voter or the silent Trump voter or the silent majority, people who are too afraid to speak up and like actually be vocal and go to a rally or whatnot. Um, you know, I, I think that kind of betrays what has happened to us socially and culturally. We have a, such a high level of shame and honor that we haven't known in the past. And, and what I mean by that, why that's important 
to your question about uh, religious idolatry on both sides is because in shame and honor, it's about breaking relationships, being in right relationship. Shame is essentially at the heart of it, not being in right relationship with someone. Honor is being held in high esteem by relationship. It's not a legal, are you right or are you wrong? And I think a lot of us Christians, the way that we're taught to think about, for example, our theology of salvation is, is forensic. It's through that legal mindset. Am I justified? or am I not justified? But there's a very much a shame, honor. Am I in right relationship with my Lord and Savior? Or am I not in right relationship? And, and that gets deeply to, um, you know, that you offend God with your sin. He's a holy God and you've offended him um, by your sin. And that's, you know, the, the necessary reaction is wrath and judgment. And of course, there's the legal aspect there, there's that forensic aspect. But I think we kind of downplay that because we kind of sit uneasily with that. But I think now's the time to really talk about restoration of relationship, of communion with our Lord. Because if you think about, to your point, um, these almost religious purity tests, that's very much a shame honor question on both sides. Am I in right relationship with these people? And therefore, you probably have a good number of folks who may have a nuanced view or be more willing to uh, say like, hey, I agree with that policy, but not this one. And I just have a different hierarchy of ethics. I, I agree that you know, this issue is a right or wrong issue, but this party may have more of the ethical issue that weighs most upon my, my heart before the Lord. And we can't really have those conversations anymore because we feel the weight of shame or the potential of it. Or at least that's my take on it. Yeah, I agree. And that's something, um, if we have time, it's something I've wondered about before. And again, I think you, you know you know more about sociology and, and anthropology than I do. It's something I've wondered about before, though, if, if American society, in part because of social media, could actually transition more to, a, uh, to an honor shame culture, which I would argue, you know, in the past, again, obviously, concepts of honor and shame exist in America, but if it's something that can become more pronounced um, just in, in our society. But before uh, we get to that, there is something that um, it, 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 it's interesting that you keep talking about, you know, worshiping where we work, where we live, because I think at times where I've lived in suburban areas and churches have gone to in suburbs and it's like people live everywhere but close to the church. It's like people live 20 minutes in every conceivable direction away from the passing, undoubtedly passing fine churches on the way to that church. But it's just interesting that people intentionally pick churches that are not close to where they live. I'm not saying everybody does that, but um, I've asked just anecdotally pastors that question before in the suburban areas. And um, typically it's a significant majority of the people who go to that church do not live within five to 10 minutes of the church. And I think about where I live now in a rural area where almost everybody does live within 10 minutes of the church. Um, and it's interesting because one thing I've thought about before is I think it can be really easy, especially for somebody who lives in a city, to idealize a small town church thinking, oh, well, they must all just be like a big family. And look, we love each other. But I think that's happened at every church that I've either worshipped at or pastored at, that the, you know, people care about each other. 
But in some ways, it's interesting because as far as like openness and vulnerability, in some ways, I think it can actually be easier in the suburban church because you have people who they don't work together. They didn't grow up together. Their families don't know each other. And so I think it can actually be easier to be to be open and vulnerable with that person than at a small town where so many families, you know, most people who live here are from here. Like they all have history. And I think there can be a real hesitance. And again, I think this is true in general of small towns. Uh, I'm, so I'm not criticizing my church because again, I, I love the people. But I think there can be a tendency in a smaller town to almost be more guarded. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not doubting that. In fact, I'd say you're right on the money. And because you have more deeply rooted relationships, if, for example, let's just take um, uh, negative accountability, because there's positive accountability. And what I mean by that is, you know, someone saying like, hey, like, good job, in the sense like, hey, I saw you like go from here in your walk with the Lord to here. And that's an accountability of a kind that says, hey, I'm, I'm positively you know, reinforcing godliness. But there's also negative, and, and this is not a bad thing, so uh, don't misread it, but there's things where, you know, someone needs to say like, hey, brother, I was hurt, that was a sin. And, you know, as a fellow brother or sister in the Lord, they can, they have every right to say, I was sinned against, and there needs to be reconciliation. But that comes, can be a little bit hard if your roots are so deep, and, you know, if the sin is so heinous, or the wounding is so deep in the relationship, those things can get easily glossed over because you don't want to rock the boat or you don't want to bring shame or you don't want to, you know, excommunicate someone, remove someone from communion, <laughs> remove someone from community, especially in the smaller church. And I think perhaps one of the, the, the reasons why it can on the surface appear that folks who are in metropolitan areas, whether it's the suburb or the city, are so willing to be vulnerable is because of the lack of deep relationship. You know, a lot of people, especially the, at the time that we were in school, there was all the cities are the next big thing. Everyone, you know, over half the world's population is gonna be living in a city by 2050. Maybe that'll be true still. Um, after coronavirus, who knows? Uh, <laughs> but, you know, um, I, I think th there's that quick jump to, um, relationship because of how transient people are but I, I think it's just symptomatic of where people are coming from but it also has its dangers too and um, the analogy um, one of the pastors who mentored me said it's in community just like in marriage there's an appropriate season for intimacy relationally and you know, in the right type of marriage relationship between a man and a woman, you take off the clothes at the right time. And it was a little crass, but uh, I, he was talking to a bunch of college students from a Christian school. So I, I think it was the right audience for that. Um, because where I went to in a Christian school, we would talk about be careful about being emo too emotionally and spiritually intimate with someone too quickly just because you come from a Christian background and, you know, she comes from a Christian background, you might be like, oh my gosh, you've been praying for the spouse. I've been praying for the spouse, but we're just friends, you know. The next thing you know, there's just, you might go end up talking late into the night because of study session and you become emotionally intimate too quickly. And then one person has expectations of the relationship, the other didn't. Um, so 
that's the context in which that was shared. But I think that's kind of a, a good um, diagnosis that uh, at least the lens that I view a lot of suburban churches or any community um, in which you have people who are highly transient suddenly landing into physical space with each other. There's a longing for intimacy. And I think that just tells us we're human. Yeah. And that's interesting. You know, that's something that, I mean, in general, I think there's a, a epidemic of loneliness, which I think predates coronavirus in, in our society. And, um, you know, it's something that I'm still skeptical, you know, from everything I, I've read, interactions on social media. I mean, I met my wife online. You met your wife online too, right? Yeah. By your recommendation. So, I mean, obviously, yeah. Um, <laughs> I was 99% sure you met her online. Um, so obviously we've interacted with people digitally and um, you can form, you know, I have no doubt there's people online who some of their best friends in the world are people who they've never met in person. And they're genuinely friends. Uh, you know, I, I don't doubt that. But I think the danger is when that becomes your whole circle socially. Because mm-hmm. um, I think that there is still a need for actual like, physical yeah. connection and togetherness with people. And so that's a concern that I have just for society. That's something I wonder about. And again, I'm not a, I don't, I don't know the future, but you know, we were young adults when smartphones just became ubiquitous. And so like we were young enough and I, I really, I don't know about you. I feel blessed I didn't have an iPhone when I was in high school. Uh, I feel like I would have gotten nothing done. <laughs> and like, I, I really, by the grace of God, that wasn't a thing when I was 16 or 17. Um, but like, obviously there's lots of research that they, de- they, they design cell phones and they design these popular apps like Facebook and Instagram, you know, to be addictive. I do wonder if there's gonna be somewhat of a cultural backlash at some point and to a degree, I mean, obviously there's people who decide to leave social media and just get off of it. Um, probably for some of the reasons I'm des- describing, lack of connection, waste of time. Um, and so I do wonder if there's gonna be, at some point in the future, a big exodus from so- some of these social media sites. It's kind of like when we were at Trinity, I feel like a lot of people at Trinity, when they were picking churches, seem to want churches that were more liturgically structured. Not everybody, but a, a lot of people like that seem to be something that they desired. Churches that there, there was a thoughtful process to how they did worship and why they did worship. And it's not that it mattered equally to everyone, but to a lot of people, um, even if for many of them that wasn't even their church background, it was something that resonated with them. And it's something I wonder about, like I said, with social media, if at some point there's just, you know, the younger generation, when they get older, a lot of them are just gonna have this sort of existential crisis where they're like, I lost my childhood to this and just kind of giving it up or severely cutting back on their consumption. Yeah, I have a couple of thoughts on that. Um, the first is, is that yeah, I think that's already happening. The question is to what degree and extent it's actually gonna be viable and or successful. So viable, I think, is the easiest and shortest to explain. What I mean by that is it's addictive. You have to rewire your brain not to watch it. And you have to replace your digital consumption with something else. Um, I'm going to recommend people go on YouTube and find uh, 
a chapel talk that Reed Shushart gave from Wheaton College. That's where I went to school. It's a 2009 chapel talk in which he, um, he had some witty things to say and very insightful things to say about visual media and attending to um, God himself and God's word. And he was essentially saying social media is designed and it, it runs along the same axis of proliferation or how easy it is to produce media and how short our attention span is becoming. He said, this is your world now. How are you going to sit and listen to a holy God who speaks and doesn't post to YouTube? You know, and it was a very prophetic message. But I, I, yeah. I think that as Christians, we have to think about that very seriously, if not for all the reasons that we've said with regard to at least America's political divides, but even just from the aspect of this could be a mechanism by which the evil one could be getting more and more Christians distracted and incapable, almost at the biochemical level in their brain incapable of resisting the temptation to see what someone else has spoken or posted instead of dwelling richly upon God's word. And as pastors, I think that we have to think about that. So that's the viable aspect. So I think wisdom is what Reed Shushart would say. Uh, but I would say even more so now, we have to be wise about consumption. And that's where I'd say there's a question of how successful will we be when, and I actually work in IT, and I worked for a company that had a, a fruit as its logo. I can tell you without, you know, um, you know, I signed some NDAs about why they do what they do. Their training is essentially teaching people how to worship. And they're, how they guide people into buying products and using them is, should be a discipleship manual. That's how good and thoughtful they are about space, about how their apps are designed. That's how in tune they are as designers to how people work because they play upon the affection. Um, and I can get more into that later. So that's the viable question. And you know, then there's the other question of it's happening already. So that's the scale. And so you have the minimalist movement. So people who are getting rid of physical belongings because they want more experience. To, um, and then you also have people who are going more analog. I mean, at, right as we speak, you have people getting into hobby cars. You have getting people into restor restoring things. You have people who want to, um, you know, upcycle, you know, wardrobes or whatnot, and they, they turn it into like a hobby. Hobbies are huge right now. And they're, if you notice, a lot of them are analog. And I think that's because there's this desire to be tactile, to, to feel a physical world. And um, the digital music market has, you know, it wrecked the CD market for a little bit, but what's selling more successfully than anything before in the world? Vinyl LPs, vinyls come back. People want something physical. Here's the question of scalability. All of these hobbies cost money. They're, they're highly expensive. 
to just about everyone who isn't doesn't have some form of disposable income after coronavirus and all that it's done to change us economically will these be will this the ability to enjoy things physically be relevant be something that's essentially a luxury and I, I think that's just a question worth asking um, because vinyl is still expensive. You know, it's twenty, thirty dollars. You know, an album. You know, it, and we, we've got inflation. You know, relatively stagnant wages compared to our inflation rate, and that's before coronavirus. So those are economic questions to ask. But again, how many people can actually enjoy a physical world? So take it for what it is. Again, that's just very, uh, very thought provoking, and um, yeah, just the the changes that and the shifts that we make in what we value and what we do and how we spend our time and how we spend our money. Um, yeah, again, that's just I think it's interesting. Um, and I, a couple more questions. Sure. Um, and again, switching back to the inauguration. I like how you put it earlier about hopefulness. Um, I'd be curious in the next administration, what's the thing that makes you most optimistic and the thing that makes is most concerning? And I guess it doesn't even necessarily have to be about the administration itself, but just the world where you see going over the next few years? Um, I, I really don't see anything particularly hopeful with regard to American politics. And I think I should qualify that because, you know, I, I think where I, what always gives me hope, and this is just me personally, is that with every passing day, it's one day closer to Jesus coming. And I think that's just wonderful. And then there's the realist part of me and the part of me that likes studying history and patterns and whatnot that says, well, this isn't looking too good. And, and you know, I think that I, I'd be, so, so for me, with regard to wh whichever administration was going to take over, it doesn't really matter to me. I, I think that there's a normalcy bias that says, you know, if only my candidate would have won, things will return to normal whatever normal is. We've been long upon this trajectory that really isn't the best trajectory from a historical lens. You know, from our spending to the um, increasing verbal to economic hostility between ideas or ideologies along the political spectrum. So again, that's the moving of people geographically to the moving of people with regard to um, digital space to the denying of services and that's including banking social media access and whatnot for certain ideologies that that to me from just a realistic standpoint it's not going to be civil war too with armies lining up against each other it's going to be probably more sectarian with spats of uh, political violence and this is just my prediction. You know, I think things really take a turn. You know, I could be wrong. I, I, I'm not 
but it, it looks more like sectarian violence that comes up here and there, brawls in streets, but that's actually kind of normative for American history. The fact that we've had since the end of World War II to present, and it's been relatively calm, relatively, because there actually was quite a bit of violence, we've had it pretty good for a couple of decades, including the economic growth. But if I'm, so if I'm being a realist about it, all empires come to an end, it's just how they go out. And I think as a Christian, you should be okay with that. You know, you're are, are hoping the Lord is not coterminous with the prosperity of our current, you know, location as far as the nation state. Although I definitely have my preferences. I love a good nation state for its function. I, I love, um, you know, due process under the law. You know, I love the Bill of Rights. It, it's a wonderful document. Was it written by perfect people? No. Do I think that there are some really bad tendencies to um, anachronistically look at historical figures and throw out the baby with the bathwater? Absolutely. You know, is there a difference between saying, here's a historical context with a present circumstance, with a present outworking for a circumstance to the whole thing's bunk? Absolutely. Um, and I think we're more in the, uh, we're more in the era in which, I, I'm not saying pure dystopia, but we're living this strange trifecta of Orwell, Aldous Huxley, and the guy who wrote Fahrenheit 451. So what I mean by that is um, you have your, um, your big brother, the all-seeing eye, if you will, the one who sees and watches everything, your social media, and that just shocks people into shame and silence, always watching, you know, there, there's that feeling of always being watched and, you know, like government's always getting bigger, whether right or wrong, that's the feeling. But then you have this lulling into apathy or complacency um, by social media, making you feel good about yourself, which is kind of like Soma. We're, we're hedonistic to our core. As long as I'm getting my own, my comeuppance, as long as I put food on my table, you know, as long as I'm hedonistically satisfied in my earthly uh, desires and, you know, Aldous Huxley in his Brave New World, people were popping pills or participating in orgies and that's how they were controlled. As long as he can make people happy and, you know, hedonistically satisfied, they were controllable. And, and that's essentially being watched, being perpetually entertained or amused to being distracted, and then you burn history. That's your Fahrenheit 451. So I think that there's a strange intersection of all three dystopians. And yet it's not as dark or dreary as, you know, an Orwell's 1984. Um, it, it's not oppression by the, by the whip, if you will. It's control by um, making pe helping people forget Fahrenheit 451, erasing history as well as making them just so entertained that they don't know what's changing beneath their feet. So a perpetually distracted and ever reacting society and not really a thinking one. So that's where I'm kind of like, I'm more of a pessimist because of uh, at least what I've seen or what, I, what I'm prone to see in history. Because I'll admit I might have my own biases or leanings as far as what I want to see. But you know what? I think that God can do amazing work. And that brings us 
to a place where the church can show why evil is truly evil. That makes the gospel more compelling. And so what I mean by that is there's an, a certain type of apologetic in which you can show how evil and wretched life is and how terrible life is without God. And that is a compelling argument for, for many. And in a, in a world where more people are scared, it, I think it, we would do well to show people, yeah, this is a scary time. But if we can show up and we can not run away and be hopeful in the Lord, and for good reason, I think the Lord can do some very powerful things. And so I jokingly said to you one day, you know, I think it's time for revival. Like, we, we, at least America's been long overdue for an, another great awakening. Why not now? I don't want to put the box around the Lord. So <laughs> I think if there's a time to pray and lament over what we have become as a people or as a nation state, if that's still a thing worth calling a community, now's as good as time as any, I suppose. That's, uh, I think, a great word to, to close on. And, and yeah, I, I would absolutely agree. And I certainly, I pray for revival in our nation with everything that we're facing right now. Dan, I feel like we just scratched the surface on so many interesting subjects. I truly appreciate your time. And I'd love to talk to you again sometime on this uh, podcast because I just, I always appreciate your insights into the end of the world. And, uh, but it's so great to talk to you today. Well, absolutely. I'd love to talk to you more, Josh. It's always a pleasure when we do. Thank you.